Welcome back to Braincast, the podcast run for students, by students, to highlight current research within psychological and brain sciences. In today's episode, we're joined by one of the most important researchers in consciousness science within the 21st century. Working as a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex and the director of the Sussex Centre for Consciousness Science, Anil Seth has transformed the field of consciousness, bringing in new ideas and approaches that can be translated into psychiatric medicine. Our co-hosts, Lowell Downs and Paddy Hairsnape, speak with Anil about what it's like to research the phenomena of inner experiences, whether or not AI machinery can ever become conscious, and the idea of time perception. Listen to this episode to better understand individual perceptions of reality and the self, as well as current approaches to uncovering the mysteries of consciousness. As always, if you like what we do here at Braincast and are interested in either hosting an episode or joining as a guest speaker, head over to the podcast description to find out how to get involved. So I wanted to begin by asking how you got interested in cognitive and computational neuroscience and especially uh, consciousness. Well, I mean, so I was not so much interested in that specific combination of computational and cognitive stuff, but I was always interested in in the brain but even before that I think I was interested in some of the these big questions that I think we all have I don't know if you had but when I was a kid like these questions what who am I you know why am I me and not somebody else what happens when I die where was I before I was born these kinds of questions everyone asks them at some point but most of us get educated out of asking them and go on to do something more sensible but they were always there in the background for me, and it wasn't that I thought I would have a career investigating them, um, but that's sort of what happened. But it, it wasn't like a grand strategic plan. It just sort of the, the interest was always there. And in hindsight, I realised that I was always kind of trying to get back to that at some point. Because I think you said it yourself in one of your talks. You said a lot of people see it as career suicide to go to study consciousness. And it's the toughest, big questions, and no one's really managed to get a, a good shot at them so far. So it must have been a big step to realise, okay, uh, now I want to study consciousness, actually. I mean, I didn't really do that explicitly until after my PhD. So, yeah, certainly at the time, and this is now 30 years ago that I was doing my first degree, it was, it seemed to be anyway from where I was, like, not something that was feasible, plausible, a good idea. And I was doing psychology and most of the work was still... You know, training rats to do particular things and seeing how they behave and um, questions of consciousness were definitely in discussed but they were more informal and more philosophy rather than mm-hmm. hardcore science that has changed and it's still fringe you know this this idea of how the brain generates conscious experience it's still a bit fringe but it's a lot less fringe than it was and there's a much greater recognition that it's it is attractable or at least a somewhat approachable problem might not solve it but we can find things out about the relationship between the brain the body and consciousness and it's also an important problem so it's not just idle speculation uh, a philosophical adventure but it matters in the real world too because we have all sorts of mental and psychiatric health crises for which we need to understand that these are disturbances in conscious experience and of course these days there's also much more concern about animal welfare and very recently about the rise of artificial intelligence. All of these things, an understanding of 
what consciousness is and how it happens for humans and other systems is important. I've been listening to your voice for the for nine hours on audio book. Oh, no. so this is pretty cool to finally be chatting to you. Um, so could you briefly describe what consciousness is? I, I guess you've probably been asked that question a million times, say it a million times a day. And it never gets easier, right? <laughs> it's, still, it's still a difficult thing to define. There's still no consensus, precise, broadly accepted definition. At the same time, we all know what it is. I think there's this um, general familiarity with consciousness is what goes away when you fall into a dreamless sleep or go under general anesthesia. It's what comes back on the other side. The other way to think about it is you know, when, when you wake up, open your eyes, or just close and open your eyes, sure the brain does stuff, you know, signals, energy comes into the brain, neurons fire, we say things, we do things. But there's a whole other dimension, which is that there's an experience as well. You know, there's, there's colors and shapes and shades and smells and touches, and, and there's a whole world of experience. That's what consciousness is. It's what makes us more than complicated biological objects. So interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just, it, it's, I was saying to Lowell before he came, I've been saying to people, I was discussing it, like, from a non-religious perspective, you're kind of like, you're kind of like God. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. it's everything. It's like your experience, like, it's it comes down to, like, your experience of everything is all there really is, isn't there? Like, and how you, you take in the world is is kind of all that matters. You know, experience everything through yeah. our bodies and, 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 yeah. That's right. I mean, I think that, that's, that's another reason why it's such a distinctive problem, because... I mean, there are plenty of other big mysteries in, in, in science, like what happened in the first nanosecond of the Big Bang, you know, what's the universe really made of, um, all these sorts of things. But most of the time, we can get on with our daily lives without really worrying or thinking about these things at all. Mm -hmm. But consciousness is different. It's a mystery that matters to every one of us because, as you said, everything that happens to us, everything that we are, is, ma is manifest through our conscious experience. So as well as trying to understand a deep mystery, we're also, as people have done through the ages, we're also trying to understand ourselves and, and each other. Yeah, it's a weird concept of the anesthesia, you know, how you just, you're just taken out of existence temporarily. You, know, you have no concept of time or anything yeah. around you, like you said, and you suddenly flash back into it. And obviously, it's the, the, the hardware has still remained, your body's still intact, everything's still functioning, but just something's changed, and so much is lost from that. It's quite a, a, a weird kind of phenomenon, almost. Have you, you know? ever had it? Down I've had it one yet? memory. I'm sure maybe when I was really young, I had it, but I don't remember right. it. But I've got one time I do remember it, and it was, you know, they put the mask on you, yeah. and just in an instant, you're just waking yeah. up. Yeah, you can count backwards, and you know, you can, it doesn't matter where you start, you, you only get two numbers in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all over. <laughs> It's crazy. Yeah, it is. It's a fascinating non-experience, mm. I think, to, to have. So you, you founded the Sussex Center of Consciousness Science. And what, what are the current goals for that? And what sort of experimental techniques are you using at the moment? So it was, it was co-founded with uh, Hugo Critchley, who's the chair of psychiatry here. When was it? Probably 2010, so now 13 years ago. And one of the reasons we did this here at Sussex was because of Sussex's reputation for, well, both being very strong in neuroscience and in philosophy, and also for being very interdisciplinary. And if you're 
going to make progress on a problem like consciousness, you can't do it from within the confines of any single discipline. At least I don't think so. You need to bring together insights across disciplines, especially philosophy, neuroscience, also physics, mathematics, uh, psychology, and on the, the medical side, psychiatry and neurology too. And the specific goal we had was, was exactly to both understand consciousness as it happens for all of us, but then try to use some of these insights to develop better understanding and eventually treatments for especially psychiatric conditions. So that was, that was the goal. It still is the goal. It, it turns out to be very hard to, to make that leap. Um, to really translate from one to the other, but it's, it's happening in a, in a few cases, which is interesting. And the methods that we use, they're, they're very varied mm. you know, because the problem is, is a big one. Yeah. And it, it goes all the way from mathematics, where we develop new kind of theories and, and measures um, and uh, figure out their properties and so on, to computational modeling, where we'll, we'll develop simulations of the brain or parts of the brain in a body and in a world um, to experimental stuff where we'll have people either sit, sit in a lab and stare at a screen and press buttons or, or put a VR box on their head, things yeah. like that. Um, but other kinds of experiments too, we're currently doing things with strobe lights which give people surprisingly vivid visual hallucinations. Um, we do brain imaging, look at what happens in the brain. Um, and all of these things, and then there's sort of philosoph philosophical research as well, trying to figure out how, how it all works together and, and what it all means. Yeah. So putting all these things together is, is the challenge, but also the really exciting part of what we can do. And you, you mentioned that you've managed to use it a couple of times for psychiatric health, is that right? Did you say that? Say again? You, you managed to use what you've learned so far uh, in a couple of cases for psychiatric. Yeah, so there's been a couple of... of of context where there's been a more direct connection. So one thing, it's something we're currently working on, is understanding the difference between different kinds of visual hallucinations. So in, in things like psychosis, sometimes people have particular kinds of hallucinations. They're different from the hallucinations people have in Parkinson's disease um, or when they go blind, things like that. So trying to un unravel what leads to these different kinds of hallucinations can give us insight into you know, how, how best to deal with them when they happen yeah. for people. There's, I think, a much more ambitious but potentially more difficult um, context, which is the perception of the body from the inside. So Hugo Critchley has been leading research for many years on this, this, this area called interoception, which is the perception of the body from within. And something we think is happening in a lot of psychiatric problems is issues with this process, with how the brain perceives and regulates the body. Um, that underpins a lot of emotion, but it also, you know, when it's going wrong, it can change the way you experience the world and, and especially the self. So I think there's a lot of insight there. It's just very challenging to make it work in practice because it's very hard to measure and manipulate these signals that are purely within the body. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, well, I think that, that kind of leads into like something I wanted to kind of talk about is like 
with like the world and right now we're, we're exposed to like a lot of like negative happenings and I, I was wondering since you mentioned interspection uh, if you could sort of walk through the process of say looking on your phone seeing like a horrible news article that um, that emotion that you feel like what how, how do we feel like these emotions like yeah that's that's good a good example so firstly there's a really important and it's a really tricky distinction between introspection and interoception. They're very easy to confuse, right? Introspection is this when we consciously think about our own thoughts, like try and look into our minds. So that's one thing. And then interoception is this other thing where the brain is perceiving the state of the body. If you open your phone and, and look at the latest horror, you know, what happens? I think there's many stories, but the tempting way to think about it is that you know you look and you might see oh, you know another proxy war in Sudan or something like that and that you um, that causes an emotion of of anxiety or, or sadness <clears throat> worry something of that sort empathy maybe and um, and that emotion then maybe makes your body feel in a particular way but What's more likely to be happening, and this is an idea that goes back over 100 years to the psychologist William James, is that you open your phone, you see the, the bad news. Um, it's processed in your brain pretty rapidly as something not good. And that causes changes in your body. And then the brain perceives those changes in the body. And that is the emotion that you feel. So it's kind of the other way around. Instead of emotions driving changes in the body, emotions are perceptions of changes in the body. So you're not, you're not reacting to the phone, you're reacting to your bodily changes. Almost. I think you're reacting to, your brain is reacting in a very proactive way in order to yeah. control the body to the state of the body in the context of, of the wider world, which yeah. is why, you know, sometimes when you... You, know, you feel a particular emotion and you realize that like, ah, but you know, that I could feel something completely different. It's just that I've assumed the context. Mm. So, you know, if, you, if your body is, is kind of aroused in some way, you know, your sort of adrenaline is high or something, this can both be, this can either be terrifying or it can, or it can be exciting. It mm. depends on, on the context. We're, we're all very different on the outside, but we, we can differ internally on our own perception of our own reality. Uh, and do you think that we, experience the world in the same way or differently despite it being the same subjective reality around us you know yeah so i think the the reality it's what we live in a shared objective reality so the question is is it subjectively different and i think it is and i think it's it's often hard to realize this but there have been a few examples that make it clear so about eight years ago i don't know if you guys remember this photo of the dress yeah, yeah, uh, the, blue, the blue and black one. The blue and black or, or the, white and gold. Yeah, yeah. So this was fantastic because this, um, actually I, I was teaching a, a course class at Sussex when this image kind of went viral. And it's, I, I wasn't sure what was going on at first because it seemed obviously blue and black, but it's this photo of a dress that's not very well um, exposed and actually the thing about it is that the context is very ambiguous like you don't see much of the surrounding frame or the situation and it turns out that half the world see this as blue and black and half the world see the dresses as, as white and gold and 
that really provoked a recognition that like, oh my God, we can see the same thing differently. But because it was a sort of social media meme, it, you know, that moment came, came and went. And the deeper lesson, I think, from things like the dress is that it's not only images like the dress, which just happen to tease apart individual differences in a very specific process called color constancy in the brain. But it's everywhere and all the time. Like in this room, we might be having slightly different experiences of the colors of the walls or of the temperature of the room or of the passing of time. And these can be very hard to acknowledge because firstly, they're hidden. So unlike differences in skin color and height and so on, I can't experience what you're experiencing. And also because it seems as though we experience the world as it is. Like it doesn't seem that the colors and the shapes and the smells are creations of my brain. It seems like, well, that's the world and it just pours itself into my mind. So those things together conspire to lull us into this false sense that we each experience the world the same way. But I don't think we do. There's this concept already out there of neurodiversity, um, which does say, you know, state very clearly, tries to, to convey that there are differences among all of us. But what's happened is that that term has tended to become associated with specific conditions like autism or, or ADHD, which ironically reinforces the idea that if you're not neurodivergent, you're neurotypical and you see things as they are. Mm which I think is wrong. So I've been talking more about this perceptual diversity, this idea that we, we all differ. And maybe the differences aren't that great, but they're still meaningful. And we don't know much about this. So there's this project that, that's led by my, my group in collaboration with the University of Glasgow called the Perception Census. And so we're trying actually to map out this hidden landscape of inner diversity, of inner difference. And we're still collecting data, so if people want to help advance the science and get a warm glow of contributing to knowledge, then um, yeah, do take part in, in the perception census. It's easy to find on my, on my webpage. Uh, what, what are you kind of expecting to see from that? What do you think of the well, patterns or that kind of arise from it? It's pretty exploratory, to be honest. We don't, it's one of the things that I've done that is most, let's just, have a look rather than testing a particular hypothesis. So also we're being very careful um, to not peek into the data while we're still collecting it because we, we don't want to bias how we analyze it in the future. So this sort of the methodology, you've got to be kind of quite fierce about this and, and separate these two stages. But ultimately what I'm hoping to, to see is that there'll be some like underlying structure that explains how we all differ along many dimensions at once. And maybe you, you, if you perceive color in one way, you might perceive time in a particular way. And, and maybe that, that has to do with an overall property of, of your brain, maybe about how your brain's expectations shape what you experience. So really, what's, what's this so-called hidden space, latent space? Is there, do we all have perceptual personalities that we don't really see on the outside? So you're, almost, you're saying that you could kind of categorize different ways people can perceive things. Is that right? So you could almost say if people perceive time in this way, then they're similar 
to perceiving color in this way. And you can start to categorize these different kind of patterns. That's, that's, similar, yeah, that's similar to that. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to have, you've got many different dimensions that we can see how people vary on. So the first thing is like, do they indeed vary? You know, is there variation out there or, or is it much less um, or much more than, than we think? And then given that variation, like what are the relations between different kinds of variation? Like how does variation on time relate to variation on, on color to something else? And are there things like that predict overall patterns of, of variation? Like, you know, your, your blood pressure might predict many things about your behavior, you know, how general, generally how fit you are and, and how resilient you are to standing up quickly and all these kinds of things. So blood pressure is, a, is like not something that's immediately visible on the outside, but it explains a lot. So are there equivalent things like that that explain differences in perception? And it kind of, I guess it, if like we can understand like how people perceive the world differently, like that could lead to more like empathy for how people can come out with different point of views because we all do actually perceive the world differently. So, like, do you think it would ever be possible to, like, actually experience, like, how, like, someone's conscious reality and, like, how someone perceives the world? I mean, the first point is that, I mean, that's one of the hopes, and I, it, it might be a bit idealistic and optimistic, but there is this hope that just by revealing to people, you know, that their perceptual take on things isn't how it, things really are, but is their individual take. Not unrelated. I mean, it's of course we all, you know, evolution has made it, made sure that we, our perceptual experiences are similar enough that we can survive in the world and survive in the world together. But just to undermine this idea that like, yes, I see things and that's how they are. Um, maybe that will help cultivate a bit of humility also about what we believe. You know, we, we know all about social media echo chambers now and, and, and this difficulty people have in understanding that other people might believe something completely different. And the first step in bringing people together is to realize that you, everybody, you have a point of view too. And to recognize your own beliefs are a kind of a product of your perspective. Doesn't mean they're right or wrong, just means that, you know, if we always take our beliefs and our perceptions as unquestionably reflecting how things are, of course that's going to be tougher. And just showing that this process of construction applies to perception as well. You know, I think that might be helpful in softening people's attitudes to their, to their beliefs. I completely agree with you. <laughs> well, yeah. let's see. Let's see. The, you know, time will tell. Um, and we have senses for like uh, physical objects, sound waves and light, but how do we consciously um, experience time? I mean, like how, how does that? <laughs> yeah. I, I think I remember you highlighted in your book like this awesome study of like, was it like a VR headset and they were like, was it they were jumping off something and like they had to look at a, a dot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so time, um, so this is, I think she didn't do much work on time perception until quite a few years ago. And then I have a, a colleague uh, also at Sussex, Warwick Roseboom, who I worked with a lot. And he's led this amazing research into, into time perception. Because, um, yeah, you're right. We don't have, you know, we've got eyes for vision. We've got ears for sound. We've got noses for smell. 
where's the time sensor? We don't have like a sensor for time. There's no sensory data like conveying time to us that in the same way that light conveys visual information. So how does, how does it work? Um, one idea is that there's this kind of clock in the head that's sort of you know, a reference for time, like a stopwatch, and that the brain is kind of looking at the stopwatch to figure out what's happening. This is a bit weird. It's a bit like saying, in order to hear stuff, we need a little band in the head to play music from, from the world. Um, and it doesn't seem to work that way. So Warwick's, actually this study, I'll take the study that I mentioned in the book is by an old friend of mine in, in California called David Eagleman. And he was sort of testing this, this clock idea by um, having people bungee jump while staring at a wristwatch that was changing very, very quickly. So it just seemed to be a blur. And his idea was, or the thing he was testing was, okay, in moments of high adrenaline, <clears throat> sometimes it seems as if everything slows down. Like this is what people say, you know, in the midst of they're about to crash a car into something. It's, oh, the world slowed down. Okay, does it slow down? You know, does our sort of frame rate of perception speed up? And so his idea was, if this watch was, could not be read normally, but then in a situation of high arousal, doing a bungee jump, if the frame rate of perception went up, then maybe these numbers would resolve and people would be able to read them. It's a really clever design and it's quite an ambitious experiment to do. You know, you've got to get people to do multiple bungee jumps staring at a watch and, you know, like, I don't know who volunteers for that. Uh, and it didn't work. I mean, which I think that's, that's the great thing about science is you can have a great idea and then the real world just says, <laughs> no. So people couldn't read it. But that's also important because it, it suggests that that's not the way time perception works. Warwick Roseboom here has always been sort of pushing back against this idea that there's a clock in the head. And, and he had the, the theory that time, at least in terms of duration, like, because there's many aspects of time perception. There's its flow, there's its duration, there's whether things happen in an order or not. All of these things are different. But duration, given that there's no time sensors, he thought the brain creates duration from other senses. So if you're focusing on vision, things change in the visual field. Um, like it's basically the brain is inferring duration from the number of important changes in, in vision. And so we were able to test this hypothesis using, well, um, movies that had different rates of change. You built a computational model that showed the same biases in time perception that humans do. And then we did brain imaging as well to sort of show that we could predict how long people experienced a movie based on activity in their visual cortex, according to this model. So this, this puts time perception, I think, in a, in a really interesting new light, that it's, it's, again, it's something the brain makes up, but there's still a big mystery here, which is really at the intersection of neuroscience, philosophy, and physics, which is like, why does time flow? Yeah. That is a different question. I always feel like with my like personal experience, I don't know about you, like 
Like when I feel like I'm doing, like this is maybe not from a neuroscience perspective, but like when I'm doing like more things, like and like new things and new experiences. So I, I recently I, I just walked um from the west coast to the east coast, the oh, UK. Wow. So I went through like the Lake District and was staying in a different hostel each night, and that was like eleven days, and it just felt like those eleven days felt like a, a month, like because I was I, I was just experiencing so many new things new places and it just felt like time kind of slowed down in that experience yeah that's how i've I've kind of i don't know i've I've always seems like time kind of slows down when you do more things but there's there's another really tricky question here which is was it slower at the time or or is it just slower now in your memory of it Mm. yeah yeah well it's a question yeah i mean i feel like as well um I feel depending on how you perceive time. So if you say uh, you need to do a drive, pick someone up from town, for example, and your friend says, you know, oh no, I've done that drive. It doesn't take long at all. Yeah. I feel like it will feel shorter when you're doing it because you're already perceiving it in a way. It's, it's a small amount of time. You know, where someone says, oh, that's a really long drive, you, you feel like it's longer. So I wonder if kind of giving time a measurement, like hours and minutes and seconds, it almost makes you kind of. Um, perceive it in a restricted kind of way. Mm. If we didn't have that, if you two people sat in a room and one person was studying and one person was just sat there, you didn't have this kind of measurement to say, like, oh, I've been here for hours. I've been, you know, I feel like you you perceive it in an entirely different way. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, and it, it's there's this you know, again pretty difficult to answer question about you know, how people experienced time before we had clocks everywhere. You know, clocks are a pretty recent invention in, in human history, you know, around the time we started to have mass transportation and trains and things, um, and, and industrialization. And, and before then, you know, time was like marked out. It was still very important, but it was very flexible. You know, it was like when the sun rose, when the sun went down, and of course that changes throughout the seasons. Um, and the rhythms were much more in tune with that. So. There wasn't so much focus on five minutes or ten minutes or one hour. So I'd love to go back yeah, you know, yeah. 300 years with the sort of modern methods that we have and sort of study time perception in people before the age of clocks. But yeah, mm. that can't be done. No, <laughs> I'm sure it was different though. You know, one of my sister's friend, he decided one day he's going to stop abiding by time. And so he just, he didn't have a clock in his house. He had nothing around him that he could tell the time. And when he was hungry, he ate. And obviously he had a, he had a job that was quite flexible. Most people I was going to say that. That's, yeah, yeah. that's something so that you can tell your boss. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm not abiding by the structure <laughs> of time. Respect my... But he tried it and it, it was really nice. You know, he slept when he wanted to. He was productive in the meantime, but uh, it's just an interesting way of living. You know, but not being kind of restrained by hours and minutes and, and a regular kind of time that we're all... You know, yeah. conformity. Yeah, I think the greatest tragedy of the invention of modern time is that it always feels like there isn't enough. Yeah, yeah. From your book, the thing that stood out to me most was the um, free energy principle oh. introduced by Carlson. Obviously, I know it simplified quite a lot, and I'm sure it straight over my head if I read the whole thing. But it gave a new perspective on consciousness, and it was saying that we're existing existing in a continuous battle against entropy. Yeah. You know, uh, re- re- resisting this equilibrium with our surroundings. Um, could you elaborate on this and how that? I mean, yeah. it is yeah. It's like something that was new to me as well. A few few years, well, I guess about ten years ago now, um, or more. But it's it's 
certainly gave me a new perspective as well mm. on the brain, on consciousness, on, on self. And it's an idea that's been mainly developed by this, um, this genius guy, really, in London, Carl Friston. Um, and, but it has roots in, in physics and mathematics and specifically in the thermodynamics of complex systems, which sounds a bit scary already, but it's basically pointing out that um, for systems like us, living systems, we're always resisting disorder. Like there's <clears throat> this arrangement of cells in our bodies is one particular way. Almost any other way of arranging these cells would lead to us not existing anymore. Now, if you put a drop of ink into a glass of water, it tends to spread out through the whole water. Um, biological systems, we, we don't do that. We like bits of blobs of ink that stay more or less in one part of the glass of water. How, how do we do this? How is it possible? It's possible because we take in energy from the environment through food and, and, and light and so on. Um, and the idea of the free energy principle is that things like brains are able to resist this, this push towards disorder, which is this second law thing, by minimizing something that the brain can measure. And this is free energy. And it turns out, when you unpack it a bit more and make a few assumptions and so on, it turns out to be this thing called prediction error. So this connects with another theme in consciousness and psychology, which I'd long been working on, which is this idea of how perception works, which is that perception works by the brain continually throwing predictions into the world and then updating them on the basis of prediction error. So it's always trying to minimize the discrepancy between what it expects and what it gets by minimizing prediction error. But now, instead of this just being how visual perception works, it emerges as something absolutely fundamental to how organisms work and continue to survive. So it sort of connects things very vertically. And you can then, this is really the, where the book ends up, is this idea of experiences of the self and the world are all brought together and under the same um, notion that the brain is basically trying to keep the body alive and it's trying to do this by minimizing free energy or prediction error and that provides yeah that provides the basis the motivation and the fundamental process that underpins all forms of perception whether it's of the self of the world so we perceive the world and the self with through and because of our living bodies and this is quite a distinctive perspective. It's not, I'm not the only one to say stuff like this, but the prevailing view has been to not think of the body as so central in this way. No, it's, we need the body to keep the brain alive, it moves us around and, and so on, but to think of it as, as, as so central in our, all our experiences, it brings life and mind much closer together. It's the body isn't just this kind of meat robot that moves the brain around while we do things it's it's much more intimately related than that i want to move on to the big question because i know we're yep. a little bit pushed for time um ai mm. <laughs> yeah it scares me 
as I think it does for a lot of people. Um, and I actually saw you tweet yesterday um, that the is it the head head of Google AI, the, the godfather yep. of AI, has resigned, and I think it was partly to do with his age. But I saw in the article he regrets all his work, which is not the, the best <laughs> thing to kind of hear. Um, and I kind of just always have this like feeling, and I feel like a lot of people do, is like, like why? Just just stop. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just stop developing it. Yeah. Um, do you think that an AI or robot can ever become conscious? So things are changing really rapidly. So you mentioned this, the AI, Google AI head, this is Jeffrey Hinton. And he's an amazing guy, responsible for doing a lot of the early work in the current neural networks that power some of these chatbots like GPT, GPT-4, and so on. Um, weirdly, so Jeff Hinton could have been a Sussex academic, but Sussex didn't give him a job <laughs> way back, way back when. There which you is go. <laughs> <laughs> A bad mistake. That, yeah. <laughs> that, that, was, that didn't turn out well, that decision. He's a very smart guy. Um, and it was a bit of a surprise that he quit. Um, I don't think he regret all his work, but like some of it and the direction that it's going. What, what to me is the surprising thing is that people who are at the center of these technological developments are themselves surprised about how fast it's moving and are calling for more regulation. So like, con we'll get to consciousness in a minute, but I think it's pretty unarguable that there's a need for more regulation of, of AI because it's a powerful technology and there's a lot of risk, even if the risk is a little difficult to perceive because it's, you know, it's not like flying in a plane, but you know, when we build new planes or, or develop new drugs, there's a lot of regulation. And so, as a society, we accept that before we release these things out into the world. For AI, there isn't yet, and so that should happen. But the question of AI and its safety does get confounded quite frequently with this issue of consciousness. And some people in and around the AI space assume that consciousness is just a function of intelligence, that it will, AI will become conscious once some particular threshold is reached, and this is usually the threshold of human level intelligence. And I worry a lot about this assumption. I don't think, I think it stems from this human exceptionalism, like we think we're smart and we know we're conscious, so do things go together. Um, but in, intelligence and consciousness are very different things. Intelligence is about doing the right thing at the right time, making plans, achieving goals. Consciousness, as we've been discussing, is, in my view, only fundamentally grounded in the body and survival of the body and basic conscious experiences like pain, pleasure, suffering, disgust, joy, don't require very much species-level intelligence. So I actually think conscious machines are quite far away. They're not just going to arrive as chatbots get smarter. They might not be possible at all because conscious machines might need to be living machines. But what is likely to happen, what's already happening in some limited way, is that machines are getting to the point where they convince us that they are conscious. We can't help projecting conscious minds into these things because we're, we have all these anthropomorphic biases. We tend to project, project human-like qualities into things 
on the basis of some superficial similarity. This is already happening. You know, people attribute chatbots with all kinds of things. They, and and the, they, you know, they'll slip into saying it understands to it is conscious or sentient. And I worry about that, that slippage because it's not justified. But it still matters to us because if we inhabit a world where we're surrounded by systems that we have no good reason to believe are actually conscious, yet we can't help perceiving them as conscious, that's going to be very socially disruptive because if we assume something is conscious, we might trust it more, we might um, assume, predict its behavior in ways that, that turn out to be disastrously inaccurate. And we might also think that we have ethical responsibility towards these things, like while we don't towards other things that may be conscious but don't seem like it, like a lot of non-human animals. So there's, there's definitely a need for, I think, more sensible discussion about this. At the moment, there's this sort of just climate of almost panic out there, which, mm. is, which is a bit weird to it see. It does feel, yeah, it yeah. does feel like that, doesn't and it? And I think, I, I think there's need to panic. I, I just think there is, a, there is a moment here, and it's an opportunity to get serious about how we make sure that AI is developed and deployed for the benefit of humanity, because there's an awful lot of good potential here too. Um, and just we need to make the most of this, this opportunity and also discuss machine consciousness sensibly and a bit separately and distinguish the prospect of actually conscious machines, which I think are very remote, but others might disagree, from the much more likely prospect of machines that seem conscious mm -hmm. and how is that going to affect society. Science fiction series like Westworld have dealt with this issue, I think, much better than any research it has so far. I feel like that also boils down to what you said throughout the whole book is how do you measure conscious? Like how do we know when AI will become conscious, conscious yeah. even if they're telling it to us? You need some sort of measurement to kind of define it at some point. That's the big question. You do. That is, that is one of the big questions. And actually one of the, I was just in a meeting last night <clears throat> as a group I work with where we're trying to figure out the issues around that, like a consciousness test. Mm, yeah. What would it be? Would there just be one? Would you have different ones for different situations? Mm. There's other situations too, people with brain damage, um, non-human animals, yeah. organoids, these things, these like collections of cells that people yeah. grow in a dish that are neurons that wire themselves up. There's lots of things around and on the horizon where even if we can't answer the question, we need to have a view on what a good answer might look like or what a good you know, what the kind of information we need to know in order to reach a, a best guess would be so you met, you mentioned that conscious uh, level and content was first seen to increase under the psychedelic state yeah uh, and obviously i'm sure you from the other week you learned uh, this is a huge emerging part in um, pharmacology is, is psychedelics yeah. and how they're going to work uh, do, do you think they can be utilized uh, using this kind of increased conscious state uh, as such uh, for treating consciousness-dependent disorders such as like phantom limb syndrome? And I'm not so sure about phantom limb syndrome, but certainly there's a lot of excitement uh, about their use for things like depression, addiction, um, anxiety, the, these kinds of things. Yeah, well, it's just kind of, so more, so the ve I can never say the vegetative state. The vegetative so that's state. where your consciousness oh, right, is. Oh, right, right. So yeah. I'm more targeting those kind of things. Okay, yeah, that's, that's always struck me. 
I'd be very, very cautious about this. So yeah, indeed, like a finding actually came out of our lab, um, analyzing data from collected in London or by group in London, Imperial College. A few years ago now, we had this finding that a measure of conscious level that goes down in sleep and anesthesia goes up under psychedelics. And this is basically a measure of signal diversity. How many different patterns of brain activity are there over some period of time? So the brain is more, a bit more random, a bit more diverse in, ex, in its activity in psychedelics compared to normal waking state. And under sleep and anesthesia, your brain is less diverse. It gets more predictable. And so I think this is an interesting observation, but it's, it doesn't mean that this is the only thing happening um, in psychedelics. There's many other things happening as well. And I also think it's a mistake to sort of put it on a, on a single scale. So thinking that a condition like the vegetative state, which as you say is, is a condition in neurology where people are still go through sleep-wake cycles, but they don't seem to be conscious. Um, it's not like that that is on a single scale and then with psychedelics at the other end and waking consciousness in the middle. I don't think it's, it's like that. So I would be extraordinarily surprised if, if giving psychedelics worked to resolve the vegetative state on the basis of um, like increasing this diversity in the brain. It's, it's a really difficult thing to do ethically because you, you, know, you, you don't really know what, if any, effect this is having. Mm. On the other hand, these are pretty desperate situations. Um, there were a few examples some years ago that giving people in the vegetative state sleeping pills, some of them woke up, mm. which, was in, which was incredible. That turned out to be like, actually, that, that very rarely happens. So every patient is, is quite different as well. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating question. Um, I would like to know whether it works or not, but I'm not quite sure that the premise behind it is sufficiently strong to actually do that experiment, given the, the ethical concerns. Sam, I, well, think, I, I think, think that's all we've got time for. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much.